This is MIT Technology Review. I am in Queens in the neighborhood around a massive stadium complex called City Field. It's home to the New York Mets, though because it's baseball's off-season, right now everything is locked up and all you can really hear are the subway trains overhead and rush hour traffic. But if you look up along the edge of the stadium where thousands of fans will eventually return, you can see some of the hardware that powers the team's use of face recognition. Now, these cameras are meant to detect faces that have been banned from the grounds. Folks like ticket scalpers, people who've run onto the field, even committed crimes out in the parking lot. And that system is powered by one of the biggest names in face recognition, NEC. It's able to measure things like ears, and it still works with people wearing masks, hats, and sunglasses. And then once you get over to the turnstiles, there's another face system from a company that's known for airport security called Clear. And that's for ticketless entry. Basically, you can use your face as a ticket. And then once you get inside, there's a payment system in the concessions area, meaning you buy a beer with your face if you wish. But it's when you get to your seat that, to me, things start to get really interesting. Because even before the pandemic, attendance at baseball games has been on the decline. Actually, this stadium has 15,000 fewer seats in it than the one it replaced about a decade ago. And so, on the one hand, stadiums are trying to make the experience just as safe and hassle-free as they possibly can. But they're also trying to learn just as much as they can about who these people are in the stands. And that, too, is being done with face recognition. I'm Jennifer Strong, and in this latest episode of our mini-series, we look at how this and other tracking systems are changing the sports experience in the stands and on the court. Hmm. Let's go. In Machines We Trust. I'm listening. A podcast about the automation of everything. You have reached your destination. Okay, we are back to playing ball. Two out, first inning, no score. And the batter will be Harold Baines with a seven-game hitting streak. For decades, crowding around the TV or radio was the go-to way to consume sports. Oftentimes, that meant tuning in for hours, like this 1984 Major League Baseball game between the Chicago White Sox and the Milwaukee Brewers. The game lasted eight hours and six minutes, and it had to be completed over two days. But sports watching today looks pretty different. Human attention spans are measured in seconds, and they're shrinking. Millions of people still tune in to watch, but about a third stream them on mobile devices. And of those who still watch on television, 80% of them do so while using a second device to search stats, live scores, message other fans, and watch related videos. The segment of fans who attend games in person are now seen as high-value customers. And that's another place where Face ID comes in. If you're angered over Facebook invading your privacy, you may not want to attend a major sporting event. New high-tech cameras can now snap a high-res photo of every person in every seat, every minute of the game. Face data collected in stadiums by companies like FanCam is now being used to get insights on fan demographics like age, gender, and race. 
panoramic cameras are able to capture images in such fine detail that you can zoom in from a bird's-eye view of a stadium into the stands, onto an individual person, and still be able to make out nuances like a person's smile, the writing on their shirt, even the texture of their jacket. And now you can also quickly calculate the percentage of people wearing masks, like in the case of the NFL's Minnesota Vikings. This is new for everybody. We're still trying to figure out exactly how to enforce these mask rules and how to monitor them, how to, how to track them. Rich Wang is their director of analytics and fan engagement. He's on a Zoom call showcasing how they use computer vision. Also, if you look at this graph, that the lowest point is 87% people have their mask on. So most, at most of the time and most of the game, People are, are behaving, are, are, are you know, enforcing the mask rule. So those are really positive storylines that want to continue to support our case of increasing fans. Being able to utilize these stats to reopen venues and get fans back into the stadium. And then just as a safeguard as well, once fans are back in the stadium using some of these metrics, in addition to the mask usage, also being able to utilize the information of section capacity. And this is Rachel Goodger, the director of business development at FanCam. So obviously fans have a seat assigned to them when they go back into the stadium and fans are socially distanced. But what happens if fans start to move around the stadium and, and one section becomes over capacity, you know, in real time, us being able to, to notify staff and for them being able to see that information and say, okay, well, we need to go break up the section a little bit. And then for teams being able to look back after every single game and say, wow, we did a great job today or wow, we really need to work more on mass usage in the the lower bowl or the upper bowl or this section and things like that. I think it's data that's going to be very important for not only, as I mentioned, reopening these stadiums, but uh, keeping them open in the future. The company sells data back to the sports teams who use it to advance their marketing, affecting everything from what music is played at stadiums to what ads people see during and even after the game has ended. You're going to start to see the data that you're willing to share more broadly, coupled with the technology used for identification to make things more predictable. Donnie Scott is the Senior Vice President of Public Security at Idemia. It designs AI-driven identity and security solutions for all kinds of businesses. And that would be everything from a digital driver's license on your phone, to a physical license, to a credit card, to an electronic payment mechanism. They also make biometric technologies that recognize faces, fingerprints, or eyes, which can be used to verify identity in sports stadiums or other places like airports and theaters. So we would essentially embed the technology in their loyalty program, but we'd add to it the ability to link either their biometrics, face, fingerprint, iris in some countries that prefer it because of face coverings and other things, or their mobile device where you could authoritatively share your biometric information or the fact that you're a season ticket holder with a piece of equipment at the venue. And therefore, you know, when you show up, they know, okay, Jennifer has tickets to this game. They're valid at this date. She can pass through the gate. Their goal is to be invisible. Identity data is captured by cameras concealed as what appears to be part of an otherwise normal turnstile. It's all about creating what's known as a frictionless experience. So particularly around theme parks, but the same with stadiums and and other concert venues, the technology is evolving from being a device that kind of stands out to being part of the normal flow and cue of the venue itself. We already unlock smartphones with our eyes, fingers, and face, and that got us used to this idea of biometrics in our daily lives. Scott thinks that may be why the response to these services has been mostly positive. You know, I've watched my kids grow up with 
first opening an Apple device with their thumbprint, then moving on that they felt they were very mistreated because they couldn't unlock it with their face. And we've all become, you know, the last 15 years, 10 years, desensitized to the weirdness of it. I think most of society is focused on how it makes my life easier. And in a world where confirming your identity is as easy as unlocking a phone, your biometric data could become more important than a passport, car keys, or any other physical item we carry with us. I think people are going to become really accustomed to the technology being there, how to use it, how to interact with it, and what to expect from it. Because I think we're going to see it in all walks of life. We're going to see it when we travel. We're going to see it when we do business with our government. We're going to see it when we do business in grocery stores, in you know, sports and concert venues and amusement parks as well. So it's going to become such a standard way of life that the access part will become a de facto normal. And then it's what happens next. And what happens next could mean more personalized experiences. I think that the next thing to come is going to be to enable the fan experience. But after that, it becomes how does the fan experience fit in your life? And, you know, that is a concept that is pretty big and broad, but one that once the first two pieces are enabled through technology and enabled through an acceptance by the user themselves are only natural things that come with an improved mature use of, of a technology. You could think of an amusement park head or character where kids could walk up to their favorite character and be recognized for who they are and have a custom experience specific to them. Which is likely to happen at scale. You could see a future where as you arrive to the airport or as you arrive to the sporting event and it directs you to your parking based on recognizing your car or on sharing who you are from your phone with the airport operator or the airline or the TSA themselves, you would have a, you know, a known time to gate, right? Which is the ideal state where it says, I've got a five o'clock flight today based on the wait times that are predicted and where we are. I know that it's going to take me 12 minutes to get from the front of the airport through the checkpoint to the gate, and you're going to have directions along the way. The same experience is going to happen for sports venues and for concert venues, where from parking, you're going to be directed through the shortest line. You're going to, you know, that line's going to move quickly because it's biometrically enabled, and then it's going to be able to guide you to where can I get my concessions that I want? How long do I have to before I have to start walking so I can be in my seat before it kicks off? I think those types of secondary benefits are going to come pretty quickly as the venues get instrumented to be able to recognize and identify folks. I think there's a huge opportunity to kind of make the kind of sports fan experience more engaging, more potent. And I just think we're at the early days of that. I'm Mike Doria, and I'm the Vice President of Business Development at Second Spectrum. The company provides tracking data and analytics software for professional sports leagues like the NBA and Major League Soccer. A series of cameras no bigger than your standard security camera provide unprecedented machine understanding of every game. The kind of core of this technology is computer vision that runs on top of these camera feeds. And what this is intended to do is track the movement of every player in the ball 25 times a second. So you can kind of think over the course of one um, typical NBA basketball game, you're able to capture millions of data points that didn't exist before and use those to kind of build a suite of products or, or kind of experiences on top of that can really change the way that we see and interact with sports. Those data points are rapidly analyzed with AI, which can spit out predictions such as the likelihood a player will sink a three-pointer while the play is still in progress. It's also using this data to deliver a more personalized, interactive viewing experience for fans watching remotely. In this last NBA Finals, we ran what we call video augmentation in essentially real time on top of the game. And so what you could do there is 
For example, take that shot probability model, and while the game is being played, you could integrate into 3D space in the video a shot probability bubble over every offensive player's head that updates in real time. We can diagram the, the play that's being run as it's unfolding. So if you're trying to learn about the game a little bit, you can kind of, you know, have a, a bit of a tutorial or what would it feel like to have a, a coach sitting next to you? You know, or if, if you just want to have fun or, or kind of gamify this a little bit, you know, every time somebody dunks the ball, you can see a, a lightning strike uh, on the backboard. And so... Each of those experiences might not be right for everybody, but I think we will move to a world where live sports can be really personalized to the way you want to view it. And access to troves of data has transformed how coaches train their players. So if you kind of step back and think about the way data has traditionally been captured in sports, you would have people either sitting in the stands or watching the game on TV and kind of manually coding, that was a shot, that was a pass, that was a pick and roll action. And so from this kind of underlying tracking data set, you can apply machine learning to kind of automate that whole process. That automation allows for all that data to be matched to game film. Coaches, general managers, and analysts can then sift through it with a software tool that functions like a search engine. And so for folks who work on an NBA team, you can ask very complicated questions or make very kind of detailed queries about the game. And with a few keystrokes, a few clicks of your mouse, you can get a very precise answer in data, visualization, and an automatically generated playlist of, you know, for example, if I wanted to look at uh, Anthony Davis, LeBron James, pick and roll from the right wing, where the defense ices and Anthony Davis rolls and somebody tags him from the weak side. And so LeBron James takes a jump shot and makes it, you know, you can get the, the very precise set of every time that combination has happened in the course of these guys' NBA careers in a matter of seconds, and then kind of use that for your coaching purposes. Now someone at a team level can spend their time saying, well, I have this video or this information. How can I help a coach implement that into his game plan? Or how can I help my players kind of learn something new on the court? And so it kind of shifts their, their workflow to, to teaching and implementation versus kind of, you know, data gathering and, and manual labor. And he says over the next couple of years, the roles of these machines in the game could shift from assistant coach to assistant referee, adding context and nuance to difficult calls. I mean, we've seen this already in some other places where we work. So we'll kind of give the soccer example of you now have technology that will help with the goal, no goal call, right? You see this in tennis with computer systems being used to kind of judge if a ball is over the line or inbounds or out of bounds and be able to do this with precision that's quite frankly better than, you know, what a line judge could do or, or a referee who might have a, a really difficult angle to see if like literally every millimeter of the ball went over. You're starting to see this with the offside line in soccer as well. And so I think generally the first place this happens is to basically augment or assist a referee's capabilities. So you can kind of think about providing a referee an additional data source or, you know, an additional validation of one of their decisions. Because the system can already identify players from their jerseys, Second Spectrum doesn't need to use facial mapping or recognition. But it is useful for analytics, and that's not just specific to capturing faces. Right now, players appear in the system as dots on a map, and as their camera systems improve, those dots could transform into full skeletons. Extra detail, like real-time elbow angle, could help with even more accurate shot predictions, though not everyone is on board. You know, a sport that I follow and find fascinating is bike racing. And bike racing is a sport that is actually in a long conversation about removing technology. Jason Gay is a sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Technology now in cycling can say, 
okay, if you want to win this race or catch up to this person, you have to put out X amount of effort for X amount of minutes. And you actually have this data right on an onboard computer on a bicycle in front of you telling you exactly what to do. Now, that's like an amazing thing. However, it's also not terribly human, right? It seems to be somewhat clinical and it's created a, what many people feel is a little bit of a dry style of racing where people are data-driven and they're using their heads too much as opposed to their hearts. The French have an expression of panache. They love to see races won with panache, which basically means their gut instinct. And so there's been conversations about, well, what if we take away these computers from riders and make them you know, use their heads and their hearts to cycle? Now, there's a safety consideration here that's concurrent with this, right? You want to actually have that information creates a safer experience for a rider oftentimes. But it is fascinating that the tech has gotten so good in certain instances in terms of maximizing effort or telling an athlete what effort is required that they're starting to draw back from that. For sports embracing this tech, it's changing how the game is played. Here's an example from baseball, and we see quite often a manager will come to a mound and remove a pitcher from a game, even though the pitcher is pitching very, very well that day. The reason they remove them is that the data shows that this pitcher tends to break down at a certain point. It's almost like a car tire or something. And they're just saying, well, this pitcher at this point of the game historically is going to stop performing at the high level we need him to. So we're going to make that move. We're removing sort of the gut of saying there, oh, well, he's rolling today. Let's just let him go. They're relying on the numbers. Data-driven game strategies are also changing how teams recruit. Like in basketball, where players who can execute a three-point shot, once considered a gimmick by the NBA, are now deemed extremely valuable. The reason is that basketball teams, by looking at their numbers, discovered that a three-point shot is a more efficient shot. You'd rather take that three-point shot than certainly take a longer two-point jump shot. And so you prioritize the three-pointer in an offense. The most extreme example of this, the Houston Rockets, where you have a perennial MVP candidate in James Harden, who oftentimes is you know, taking three-pointer after three-pointer in a game because it's an efficient way for them to play. Harden, nobody near him, sets all the time and nails the three-pointer. Steps back, open three, got it! James Harden. Harden steps back, puts up a three. It goes, bounces and drops Technology is also playing assistant coach in places like the locker room of the Dallas Mavericks. What will happen is when a player walks in or anybody walks in, we'll have facial recognition. They'll take a picture of you and it'll say, okay, here comes Mark, here comes Dirk. Mark Cuban is their owner. And for any of the players or any of the staff, it'll put coaches' notes, here's what you're expected to do, and tell you what's going on. For anybody we don't know, it's going to be, eh, 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 get the heck out. And it's not just basketball. Using AI to find the most efficient pattern of play is growing across all sports. And there's a role for Face ID, too. That same face mapping that sees when you're looking directly at your phone to unlock it could also help coaches see what players are focusing on during the game. I mean, that's an incredibly integral thing for, say, a football quarterback. If you could somehow be able to render what a football quarterback is looking at, or more importantly, not looking at, not seeing downfield, well, you could see, you know, immediate utility for any quarterback, any football team. But it also applies to a point guard or, you know, somebody playing left tackle or somebody catching on a baseball team. There are numerous plays that if you're able to sort of look at what an athlete is seeing on the court or not seeing again, which is probably the more essential thing, that would have enormous consequences. 
Next episode, we wrap up our mini-series with a look at how face mapping is transforming the shopping experience. And spoiler alert, it goes way beyond just identifying who's in the store. In order to really virtually be able to try on with augmented reality makeup, you need to detect where the eye is and where the eyebrow is. And um, it has to be at a level of accuracy that when the product's on there, it doesn't look like it's not exactly on your lip. And people's lips can vary in shape. The color between your skin tone and your lip can also be very different. And so you need to have an algorithm that can detect it and uh, make sure it works. This episode was reported and produced by me, Anthony Green, Tate Ryan Mosley, Emma Silicons, and Karen Howe. We're edited by Michael Riley and Gideon Litchfield. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.